This evening we're up in Mark 14, towards the end of the Gospel. Mark 14 on page 1011, if you're using the Church Bible, we're looking at, uh, well, I guess the next page over, 11, uh, 1012, verses 26 through 42. As we reflect over Mark's Gospel up to the point we're at now, how would you describe Jesus' character? That's kind of an open-ended question, isn't it? But that's all right. Reflecting on the Gospel of Mark up to this point, how would you describe Jesus' character? What are some of his attributes? Decisive. Decisive? Mysterious. Mysterious? Righteous. Sorry? Righteous. Righteous. Faithful. Faithful. Brave. Brave. Yeah. Yeah, Danielle. Tender. Tender. Yeah, picking up brave. Oh, go ahead, Austin. Disruptive. Disruptive. Yeah, picking, picking up especially Hosanna's uh, 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 brave. He's warned his disciples a number of times now that he is going to die. And as he warns them about that, as that approaches, how, what's his attitude around that? Yeah, he's warning them up to the last moment. Doesn't change in that way. Doesn't change, doesn't waver. Resigned, but not. Resolved, maybe? That's probably better. <laughs> what, I'm thinking earlier it says that he set his face towards Jerusalem. So with resolve, uh, resigned, accepting, yeah. His face like Flint, yeah, set towards, set towards Jerusalem. He knows it's going to be really hard for him. Yeah, aware of the cost. Yeah, 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 caring for others even, even up towards the end here. Yeah, we're going to see a different aspect of this. Uh, not, not contradiction by any means, but a different aspect in the passage we're about to read. I'm going to read uh, uh, 1426 all the way through 42, and then we'll pray. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. <coughs> and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every part of your word, as varied and wonderful as it is, but we thank you especially for the Gospels, these beautiful portraits of our even more beautiful Lord. And for this scene, seeing into the intimate moments of Christ's life, we thank you for this. But not just for the words, we thank you for the awful suffering that Christ bore on our behalf for our sake, for love for us. May we be transformed by his love and his work. Amen. There's kind of two scenes here, two locations Mark identifies. First, they're on the way to the Mount of Olives, and then they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Verse 26 picks up at the conclusion of the Last Supper, or the Lord's Supper, the Passover meal. The end of everything is, uh, uh, they finish the meal, and it says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Traditionally, at the Passover feast, at the end, the Halal Psalms were sung, which is Psalms 115 through 118. Assuming that's the case, they probably finished singing Psalm 118 before they headed out. And that's a psalm that the church has has seen as rich with messianic or Christological overtones. I'm just going to pick out a few portions or, or verses from Psalm 118. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Verses 8 and 9, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Verse 17, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. And yet, verses 22 to 23, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Or verse 27, the Lord is God. He has made his light shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. All these words of the song are likely ringing in the disciples' ears in Christ's own mind as they head out to the Mount of Olives. Perhaps Christ is reflecting, out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord's on my side, I will not fear. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Well, with this or similar songs, uh, psalms in mind, they're on their way to the Mount of Olives. Remember, they're staying outside the city. They come into the city to celebrate Passover in the upper room. 
heading back out the city, back east, up to the Mount of Olives. And on the way, Jesus says to them, you will all fall away. Remember what he warned them before the, the institution of the Lord's Supper at the meal as they're eating together? What we looked at last week. One person will betray me. Yeah, verse 18, one of you will betray me. One who's eating with me. One of the inner circle is going to betray me. Okay, and how did the disciples respond? Do you remember? Is it I? They asked themselves, is it I? Okay, at this point, presuming Judas has gone off to get the others, in a sense, the disciples might be wiping their brow. Phew, it's not me. But what does Jesus tell them? You will all fall away. You'll all fall away. This word fall away, uh, the word's not that they're going to willfully turn against Christ, but uh, uh, um, it's what we get our English word scandalized from, scandalizing. Uh, they're going to be stumble or trip. Uh, the cross, the arrest, all of it is so um, almost absurd to their way of thinking that they're going to trip over it and fall away from him. They're going to be scandalized by what comes. External circumstances will cause them to trip. The scandal of the cross is so great, even the disciples will fall away. Christ says, this is to fulfill what is written. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's a quote from Zechariah chapter 13, right towards the end of the Minor Prophets, indeed almost at the end of the uh, Old Testament as a whole. Uh, Zechariah 13, verses 7 through 9. Awake, this is the Lord speaking, we're going to hear in just a second. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. What an odd prophecy. The shepherd's a way of referring to the king of Israel oftentimes. And the Lord says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And then this phrase is ambiguous. Either I will turn my hand against the little ones, or I will turn my hand to bring in the little ones. It can be read either way. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off, one-third shall be alive, and I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver, test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. So it's the Lord speaking in Zechariah. I will strike the shepherd. Again, we have this paradox here. Christ is betrayed by Judas. He's uh, falsely, you know, this, this mock kangaroo court trial before the council. Pilate, is, it's a sham. He washes his hands of it. The centurion and his Roman guards nail him to the cross. And yet, how does Christ interpret it as God saying, I will strike the shepherd? These two levels are both at work here. It's like Joseph at the end of a his story in, in Genesis 50, when the brothers are afraid, says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Two things are going on here. Human false justice, God's true justice. But how does Zechariah's prophecy end there in, in verse 9 that I read? Uh, the, strep, the shepherd will be struck, the sheep will be scattered, then there will be a sifting, there's two-thirds and one-third. There will be a refining, the one-third will pass through the fire and come out the other side. And then there will be a renewal of the covenant. I will say they are my people. 
they will say the Lord is God. The Lord is my God. So that's what's being fulfilled here. God will strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered, and yet what does Christ say? After I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. You're going to fall away from me, but that's not the end. I'm not going to turn away from you. I'm going to gather you back together. There's really a lot going on here. He's saying, God is the one striking me. You will be scattered. I will gather you back together in the new covenant. Trying to get caught up on my notes here. Uh, we see then a contrast between the disciples falling away, and that's what's going to happen in the narrative over the next couple sections, and Christ's steadfast love. And unless I, uh, to make sure I underline the big point, Mark keeps going back and forth between warnings about disciples rejecting Christ and then Christ's own experience. And so then Peter, uh, Christ being tried, and then you see Peter, and then it's back to Christ. It keeps going back and forth. I think the point going on here uh, that Mark's getting at, that he's trying to drive home to us, is it's not just the bad guys that need saving, it's the disciples that need saving. Okay, uh, what should God's response be to disciples who abandon his son in his moment of need? I mean, that's certainly a judge, uh, a damnable thing, I guess is the best way to put it. And yet Christ says, I'm going to bear that. I am going to take your unfaithfulness on myself and take the punishment for it. And so it's contrasting these, it's not just the bad guys, it's not just the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, and the sinners, it's even the disciples who need rescuing. Well, then we have another of Peter's less admirable moments. Uh, even though they all fall away, I will not. The language kind of conveys this sense of like, I'm not surprised that the rest of these guys are going to fall away, but I'm not going to fall away, Jesus. Uh, again, he's kind of correcting him here. He seems to think he has a better understanding than Jesus of what's going to go on. And then we have this, uh, it, it looks backwards and forwards. He's saying, you're going to uh, uh, deny me. So it's, it's this sandwich back with the warning about the betrayal before the Last Supper. But it also looks forward to on the other side of the prayer and, uh, and arrest, Peter actually denying Christ. So it's, it, it keeps um, interweaving these strands of the disciples falling away, betraying, denying, and Christ's faithfulness through that. Three times before dawn you will deny me. Peter says, no, I'll be faithful even to death. Uh, and the others also join in. It's interesting, Jesus just lets it go. As a parent, one of the hard things to do is when your kids are just saying something goofy and you know it's a goofy, just, you know, it's like, I, I gotta correct this. Now, it's, it's just absurd. But you just let it go. And, or, or maybe you don't let it go. But uh, in Christ, it seems like that's the sort of situation he's in here. There's no rejoinder, he doesn't keep arguing. He just says, here, you've been warned. Okay, then they come to a place called Gethsemane, which means olive press. Uh, the Mount of Olives, it has these olive groves on it, and likely there's a few centralized presses where whatever you call people who take care of olives. I don't know. Farmers, farmers, farmers olivers, <laughs> something. Uh, uh, they bring their olives, they press them in the, wine pre or in the, in the olive press and get their olive oil out. Uh, it seems to be a place to have come at night and prayed, or, or, to, or to pray, he instructs all of his disciples to sit here while I pray, and he takes with him Peter, James, and John. When have we seen him single out these disciples other times in Mark's gospel? Transfiguration. The Mount of Transfiguration, yeah. 
And there's two other times. Yeah, Jerry's daughter raised from the dead. That's who comes in. I heard someone else say it. And the other time, it's not that the three quite are singled out at the same time. Um, but on the way to Jerusalem, uh, Peter tries to rebuke Jesus. No, you're not going to die. James and John are the two that say, can we sit on your right hand? Yeah, yeah, we can drink the cup. We know what's going to happen. Uh, that, the, uh, so they, they kind of single themselves out with their, um, just with the way they are. <laughs> uh, they're, uh, yeah, uh, missing things in some ways. Okay, as we enter the garden here, I want to step out of this for just a second, and maybe especially kids, but also adults can help me. You remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Yes, I see a hand. Okay, I see some kids. Okay, what happens with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They get thrown into the fiery furnace. They get thrown into the fiery furnace. And why do they get thrown into the fiery furnace? Do you remember? Um, because the king got really mad at them because um, they didn't do as they were told. Yeah, they wouldn't do what the king said, so the king's mad at them. Now, here's a hard question. Does anyone remember what they said, what they say when the king is about to throw them in the furnace? Do you remember, Felix? We won't bow down to the statue. Yes? You got it, Christian? Um, we don't care because we will be, you know, we won't care. Yeah, we don't care what you do to us. Yeah. Because we, we will be either brought to heaven. Yeah, they have yeah, kind of a funny response. They say, the Lord can save us, but even if he doesn't, it doesn't matter. We're not going to do what you say. We're not going to bow down to this idol. It's a, it's a very confident approach to their apparent impending death. Uh, when the English reformers Ridley and Latmer were burned at the stake, Latmer turns to Ridley and encourages him, saying, We shall this day light such a candle that by God's grace in England, I trust it will never be put out. That's confidence when you're tied to a stake. Okay? Uh, even non-Christians... Socrates, for example, at the moment of his death, he's kind of making these like one-liner quips with his followers and not in agony. Why is it that many Christian martyrs and even pagans die with great confidence? What do we see here in Jesus in the garden? Is it that kind of flippant confidence? Uh, what do we see? We see agony, great distress. He's alarmed. Uh, this greatly distressed or alarmed, it's, it's almost a sense of rising panic. Okay, I'm not a fan of needles. And when I've tried to give blood before, it's like I feel the, my, my, I feel warm and my vision starts closing in. And it's like before the needle even gets to me and they're like, like oh my. And then, um, I've actually passed out more than once trying to give blood. And the last time the nurse said, maybe you can help your community in other ways. Don't come back. So, uh, uh, but that kind of like, like, you know it's coming around the corner. You know it's not going to be good. You don't like it. That rising alarm or, or uh, seems to be the, the, the sense of this word here. He's troubled. In verse 34, he, to his closest friends, he discloses. He says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. What's going on here? Why such great agony? Why overwhelmed with what's about to face him when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are so confident? Well, two things. First, we see Christ's full humanity on display. He really is human. He's not floating above it all. Like, this is not a pleasant thing 
that's coming, and he's not looking forward to it. Okay? He's in agony about it. And yet, verse 35 and 36 explain the full depths of this. He goes a little farther, and he prays, if it is possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. What's that about? What's this cup? Well, I've got to turn the page to find my verse references. Uh, this cup, sorry, no, give me one second. <laughs> <coughs> sorry about that. Uh, this cup, what is that about? Well, if we look at Ezekiel 30, 23, give me just a second here, I'll look it up and read it to you. Um, Ezekiel 23, 32-34. Thus says the Lord God, You shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your breasts, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Okay, the cup is a symbol of the judgment that came on Samaria, the capital of Israel, and it's coming on Jerusalem in the days of Ezekiel. Likewise, Isaiah, in Isaiah 51, uses similar imagery. Isaiah 51, verse 22. Thus says the Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. Put it in the hand of your tormentors who have said you bow down that you may pass over, and you have made your back like the ground. He was described Babylon's oppression of, of Judah. So there again, it's the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. It's the judgment of, of exile, of destruction of Jerusalem. So this is the cup Jesus is talking about here. It's the cup, it's a symbol of God's wrath and punishment. Jesus doesn't just face death like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Ridley, and Latimer. He faces God's holy and just anger at human selfishness and rebellion and wickedness and sin and faithlessness. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, in a sermon, comments that uh, uh, what we see in the garden and in Christ, Luke says he sweats and it's like drops of blood, this, this sweating in prayer. And Edwards says... The reason why is he's brought to the very edge of the furnace, not the furnace of the king of Babylon like Shadrach, Meshach, like those guys in, in Daniel, uh, uh, but he's brought to the edge of the furnace of hell. He's, he's seeing this is the just punishment that's deserved. If it is possible, take this cup from me. Abba, Father, two, no, two other things. Abba, Father, even in this agony, he prays in these intimate terms. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That's interesting because he says in, in verse 35, prayed, if it was possible, the hour might pass. God, all things are possible for you. There's no external constraint on God. Why then is it impossible for some other way to work out? It's God's own inner nature. His holiness and goodness and justice must be satisfied, but also his mercy. This is the way to hold these things 
together. Not an external constraint on God, but his own internal character. And he praises in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done. That's Christ's prayer, but then it goes to the disciples in their first test. And what do we find the disciples doing? Sleeping. Peter, I must, uh, if I must, I'll die with you, but I won't deny you. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? But before we're too quick to judge, to pray one hour without falling asleep, without getting distracted, <laughs> it's not the easiest thing to do. Uh, it's something I think all of us as disciples are guilty of being distracted in our prayers. He has this interesting, or, or, or sorry, it's meant to be a question. Uh, three times they're sleeping. What's Jesus' response? He has an interesting response, doesn't he? Quoted a lot of times in popular culture. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Your heart's in the right place. You want to stay faithful to me, but you are not able to. Your spirit is willing, you have the right desire, but your flesh is weak. You, you don't have it in you. Three times they fall asleep. He's sharing his deep agony with his closest friends, and they keep falling asleep. Job's comforters come and sit with him for a week before they say anything. When they do start talking, they kind of, you know, it's true things in the wrong situation, and so maybe not that helpful, but but they get things right, at least from the start, that they sit with him for a week. Christ's closest friends, it's an hour, and they keep falling asleep. But he doesn't, what, gently chides them? But then what is he concerned about? Uh, I think Joel brought this up earlier. What is he concerned about? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. It's not even, this is an offense to me. Can't you guys be with me in my hardest moment? It's saying you are passing through a difficult moment as well. Pray that you don't enter into temptation. And then the third time, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Uh, it, it, it is enough, but even it's even more forceful. It's enough. The hour has come. You prayed, uh, if possible, the hour may pass. It's not possible. The hour has come. And then we see the other side of this. I will strike the shepherd, God says. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. God is striking the shepherd through the hands of sinners. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Any other thoughts or comments? Yeah, Jan. I was just thinking about, um, you know, all through the scripture, Jesus knows stuff way before it happens. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, when we were talking about the stress that he has to go to the cross, he knows he's going to carry yeah. all the sins of the whole world. Yes. And he also knows he's going to be separated from the Father. Yeah. And so, you know, it's hard to know really what those drops of blood where, you know, it's probably all that plus his flesh. Yeah. Didn't want to have to go through that. But yeah. I, I don't know. I just thought about that. His precognizance is something that's just so dramatically Jesus. Yeah. 
Yeah, and this awareness that his vocation entails not just physical suffering, because lots of people have handled extreme physical suffering. Um, uh, I mean, even Spartacus seemed a bit more confident, at least in the movie, going to the cross. And yet, much more severe than the physical suffering is the wrath of God. This cup poured out on him, as, as Isaiah says. Uh, Isaiah also uses that language of striking in Isaiah 53, and I think that's the interpretive matrix that helps Jesus to understand his own vocation, you know, where he reads it in scripture. So he's going to be stricken for his people. Yes, yeah, Steve. Now, people who hold to the moral uh, concept of the cross, do they say that um, Jesus is dying that way because he was not suffering the wrath of God, but suffering because his, he, he set that example for us as a very difficult thing for him to do? Yeah. Um, yeah, so, and, and just to say, so people hear that there's, the cross is like the atom, that we have a thing that actually exists in reality. And then as we reflect on the atom, we have these different models. So you see like the picture that an atom looks like a solar system. Well, an atom doesn't really look like a solar system, but it's a helpful model to think about. Okay, theologians have developed different models to make sense of what's happening on the cross. Like how does this work out uh, in detail? And that's, um, Good, good and right for us to do. We're drawing out implications. One of the theories is the moral influence theory is I think what it gets called. And the idea is that Christ on the cross, it's not that he's satisfying the Father's wrath or God's wrath, um, but that he's showing what it looks like to be a good person and his, you know, it's basically Spartacus, that we see this great example and so we all stand up and say, I am Spartacus along with him and we follow his great example. Um, I think there's two ways of thinking about that, a better way and a worse way. Uh, the worst way is, is if you just have that be the driver, it doesn't make a lot of sense because as you point out, it, what's loving about dying? It's not, if it's not vicarious, if it's not substitutionary, how is it actually showing love? Uh, you might even say it's showing foolishness. Maybe you should have stayed out of the city and not got arrested if that's all it is. On the other hand, if it is vicarious, it's in our place condemned he stood as the hymn puts it, then it is really showing us love, and it does show us what love looks like, and it should influence, you know, it should have an influence on how we live in response to that. So, so I think with a more um, robust, you know, a, a substitutionary view of the atonement that he's, in my place, condemned he stood, you get the benefits of the moral influence theory without the weaknesses. Does that, does that answer that? Yeah. Um, and I do think the, the point that they have that's good is we should never frame it as the father is angry and Jesus says, oh, I know how I'll placate father. I'll do this, this, and this. Um, uh, okay, here's a deep cut. Sorry if it's not, hopefully it lands, but if not, sorry for a bad example. Uh, in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, when Scrooge is back in his schoolhouse, his sister comes to bring him home for Christmas and she says, father's not angry anymore. He's, he's much nicer now and a much kinder man. Come home with us. Christmas. Okay, uh, the picture there is an angry father, uh, a rejected son, and the sister is kind of this go-between trying to make peace. Well, if we have that view, we basically think God the Father is angry with us, God the Son loves us, and there's this division in God himself. But if we have a robust, creedal, Trinitarian view, we would say God, full stop, is just to be angry with sinners. 
God, full stop, takes the punishment for sin on himself. And yes, the father and son play different roles in how that happens, but there's no division between the father and son in the work. Um, uh, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So it's not, it's not God hated the world and the son got the father to start loving the world again. It's God loved the world and so gave his son. So, so I think that is the point where there is a, to be careful there, that we don't make the father angry and the son Yeah, um, there's also that thing that God set up the whole world with without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. That it was this fact that had to be dealt with. In the world, yeah. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, remission of sin, and there was oh, no perfect sacrifice. Yeah. yeah. Except for God, which I know is, yeah. we all know, but you know, I just think about that, how God set that up from way, way in the beginning of the deeper magic is that yeah. <laughs> the Chronicles of Narnia yeah. yeah well the garden really is a profound uh, scene in Christ's life that we're seeing the inner you know, the cross we see the outer side but we're seeing the inner side here the agony um, and it's the cup of God's wrath that must be dealt with a lot to meditate on here. Let's, let's turn, though, to our time of uh, uh, prayer.